The following content contains adult subject matter, including graphic violence, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. In 1960s East London, gangsters reigned supreme, and none more so than the Cray Twins. To build their underground empire, Reggie and Ronnie Cray relied on the unwavering obedience and loyalty of their closest associates. But when they started to take that loyalty for granted and asked a little too much of their henchmen, their empire crumbled around them and they lost everything. Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Albert Donahue, the man who put his life on the line to share the truth about his powerful and dangerous bosses. This is a story of what it took to bring down some of the most well-connected criminals in British history. In the 1960s, London was undergoing a cultural revolution. Its youthful population and growing affluence saw it transformed from a drab post-war metropolis into an exciting hub of music, fashion, art, and celebrity. It was dubbed the Swinging City, and the Cray Twins were right at the heart of it. Born and bred in East London, Ronnie and Reggie Cray owned a string of popular nightclubs and gambling dens. The image-conscious identical twins swaggered around their establishments with slicked back hair and sharp, tailored suits. They sipped champagne with Hollywood royalty like Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, and Liza Minnelli. Legendary artists like Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon gambled at their clubs. They schmoozed with British pin-up girls and even sat for the world-famous fashion photographer David Bailey. They were thought of by many as wealthy and charming socialites. But this glamour was a smokescreen for a sinister truth. Despite their veneer of respectability, the Cray twins were anything but. Professional felons with a taste for violence, it was not business acumen that got them their position of wealth and influence. Secretly, they were the kingpins of an underground organization known as The Firm, one of the most brutal criminal gangs in London. Established in the late 50s, one of The Firm's main streams of revenue was running protection rackets all over the city, offering their protection to many businesses on their territory in return for payment. The reality was that they intimidated the owners of cafes, car dealerships, and pubs into giving them this payment, and terrorized those who stood up to them with armed robberies, arson attacks, and sadistic acts of violence. When robberies were committed by other criminals in the area, they made sure to send a member of the firm around to take a chunk of the proceeds. The twins themselves were not afraid to do their own dirty work. In fact, they relished it. They were former amateur boxers who had served time for assaulting a police officer, and many people saw them as vicious bullies who seemed to enjoy making others suffer. Ronnie, the oldest, was known to have an unstable personality. He was slightly stockier than Reggie and prone to sudden, violent mood swings that would terrify those around him. 
He was belligerent, cruel, and acted at random. Reggie was the brains of the operation. He was less unhinged, but a better fighter. He had a tried and tested method of breaking a person's jaw in just one punch. He would offer his victim a smoke and wait until they put the cigarette to their lips. Then, taking them off guard, he would strike the side of their face, inflicting unbearable pain and shattering their jaw. But the Kray's most powerful weapon was their loyal group of henchmen, good fighters who knew the criminal world well and were willing to do whatever it took to keep their bosses happy and their wages paid. Each member of this group had a specific role to play in the firm. There were two drivers, one each for Ronnie and Reggie, a couple of bodyguards, a hitman, and even a business manager. But one of the twins' most trusted associates was Albert Donahue, known as Reggie's right-hand man. Albert was already an experienced criminal when he joined the firm in 1964 and had been in and out of prison several times for bad behavior and robberies. From a young age, he'd learned to fight for everything he needed in life. His dad had died when he was just three, leaving his mother to bring up their 12 children alone in London's deprived East End. His childhood was far from idyllic. In his 20s, he joined a small East London gang known for carrying out payroll snatches. The group would break into safes and steal thousands of pounds from businesses and banks. It was risky work, but Albert was in his element. He took real pride in his handiwork and was making good money to take home to his wife and two kids. Unfortunately for Albert, though, in 1962, the police caught up with him and sentenced him to two years in prison. When he was let out in the summer of 1964, 28-year-old Albert was broke, but reluctant to find himself back behind bars anytime soon. He kept his head down and tried to make money where he could, spending much of his time at home getting to know his young children. It was a surprise then, when he heard that one of the Cray's associates had visited his local pub looking for him. He was telling people that if they saw Albert, they should let him know that the twins wanted to see him. Albert was deeply unsettled. He knew about the Crays and their reputation. As far as he knew, he'd done nothing to incur their wrath. But why else would they want to see him? As autumn came and the Crays still hadn't approached him, Albert decided he couldn't wait around any longer. He wanted to get it over with, whatever it was. And so one October afternoon, he made the journey to Bethnal Green, where the Crays lived, and walked straight into their local pub. He was pretty sure he'd find them there. Inside the Crown and Anchor, it was busy. Around 15 or so Cray henchmen were standing around the place. And sure enough, the twins were there too. The moment he stepped into the room, Albert heard someone call out, Here he is! The atmosphere grew ominous. Tentatively, Albert approached the bar, where he shook hands with a few old acquaintances. But soon, he noticed people were slowly edging away from him, leaving him exposed. Sensing something was seriously wrong, 
he glanced around the place. There was furtive movement in and out of a room at the back. One or two people were passing something between them. Albert wiped his brow and gulped his drink. Suddenly, there was a loud bang. Albert's ears were ringing. And then he was hit with waves of piercing agony. It took him a few moments to realize he'd been shot in the back of the leg. When he turned around, Reggie Cray was standing directly behind him, wielding an automatic shotgun. It looked like Reggie was trying to reload the gun. Knowing that if Reggie was going to shoot him again, Albert's best defense was to try and disarm him. He began to move towards him. But before he'd made much ground, Reggie's twin Ronnie appeared from the other side of the bar and grabbed Albert's arms, pinning them down by his sides. He asked Albert what he was doing there and rubbed his hands over Albert's pockets, checking for a weapon. When he found none, he arranged for a few of his henchmen to take Albert to hospital. Once in the car, Albert demanded to be dropped off well before they got to the hospital. He wanted to avoid the authorities at all costs, and he knew better than to tell the police about the attack. The henchman agreed. Albert had hoped he could treat the wound himself at home, but he soon realized he needed proper medical attention. He had no choice but to go to hospital after all, but would tell no one who had shot him. When he was discharged, Albert had to hobble around with his leg in a cast. Unable to work, he spent most of his days playing cards in a club in Mile End, looking over his shoulder at all times. There, he'd learned the bizarre reason why the craze had been after him. Two years before, in 1962, Albert had visited an associate of his called Lenny Hamilton and found him in a state of shock. Lenny's face had been savagely burned with a red-hot poker, and his blistered eye was almost coming out of its socket. Albert had been horrified and had asked Lenny who had done this to him, but Lenny refused to tell him. In frustration, Albert had said to him, if somebody did that to me, I'd go out and blow his head off. Albert now knew that Ronnie Cray had been behind this sadistic attack and that somehow what Albert had said had got back to him. Despite the fact that Albert hadn't known the Crays were involved at that time, they'd taken his words as a threat and the Crays could never let a threat go unchallenged. Now Albert knew the truth, he felt even more uneasy. He had a feeling the craze weren't finished with him yet, and he was right. On arriving at the club in Mile End to play cards one day, Albert was told that a group of the craze henchmen had been in looking for him. The craze wanted to see him again. He was to visit them at their mother's house this time. Albert knew he had no choice but to go, there was no escaping the craze. Still barely mobile because of his injured leg, he made his way again to Bethnal Green. He wore a cardigan and no overcoat to show that he was unarmed. When he knocked on the door, he was led into a cramped living room decorated with chintz cushions and lace doilies, no doubt chosen by the twins' mother, Violet. Albert took a seat on the floral sofa and the twins sat opposite him. He'd expected intimidation, 
a savage beating, another gun being wielded, perhaps. But there was nothing of the kind. In fact, the three men had a surprisingly pleasant chat. It turned out that the Crays wanted to recruit Albert to the firm. He had earned their trust and respect when he hadn't gone to the police about the shooting, and they were impressed that he wasn't afraid to face up to them in person. Albert was dumbfounded. He had not expected this in a million years. He was still furious about what Reggie had done to him, but he tried to appear calm and understanding of why the twins had behaved as they did. And the truth was, he saw many advantages to being part of the firm. High status, decent money, and much less chance of being sent to jail. When Albert went home that night, he told his wife that he would be working for the Craze from then on. She was devastated. She didn't trust the twins and couldn't forgive them for what they'd done to her husband's leg. But as Albert told her, it's not like he had much choice in the matter. The Craze tended to get what they wanted. Albert quickly became an integral member of the Craze inner circle. Right away, he was assigned the job of collecting large sums of protection money from clubs in both the east and west ends of London. He could always be relied upon to use the necessary tactics to secure the funds and bring them straight back without skimming anything off the top. Soon, he became known as Big Albert, Reggie's right-hand man. And whenever Reggie needed a bodyguard, a henchman, or just some company, he would take Albert along. At this point in 1964, the firm was at its peak. Money was pouring in from all angles, and as more actors, sportsmen, pop stars, and even politicians flocked to their clubs, there seemed to be no limit to the reach of the Cray Twins. It was success beyond their wildest imaginings. But fame can do strange things to people. And it wasn't long before Albert noticed that the Crays were getting a little big for their boots. The first sign of trouble for the Crays came in July 1964, when a newspaper alleged that a former conservative politician and a London gangster were having a homosexual relationship. While their identities were only hinted at, many correctly guessed that the gangster in question was Ronnie Cray, and the politician was a former member of parliament called Lord Boothby. The tabloid had correctly stated that Lord Boothby and Ronnie Cray were attracted to men, but was wrong about the pair being lovers. They had simply attended parties together where they met other gay men. Either way, the tabloid had reason to believe that both were practicing homosexuals, and this was a problem. Within the firm, Ronnie had always been open about the fact that he had boyfriends, and most of his associates had no issue with it. But at the time, homosexuality was illegal in the UK and could lead to a jail sentence. Ronnie had allowed his guard to slip at one of his parties and had let someone take photos of him with other men. These had then ended up in the hands of a journalist. He was in trouble. Things were looking bleak for Ronnie when, remarkably, the UK government stepped in and killed the story. 
Luckily for Ronnie, the investigation had stumbled into an even bigger scandal involving some very important people. The police had discovered that current conservative and labor politicians had attended these parties too. When the police put this claim to the UK's two main political parties, both sides agreed to forbid the papers publishing any more information about the story to avoid reputational damage. And so Ronnie's illegal homosexual activity was swept under the rug, too. Ronnie had been lucky this time. But the scandal had only further proved to him that he was untouchable. And over the next few months, Ronnie's moods were more unpredictable than ever. Albert's trust in Ronnie was beginning to wear thin. And it was about to get thinner. In early spring 1965, Ronnie Cray was informed that a hitman from a rival gang had slighted him for his sexual preferences. The man's name was George Cornell. Ronnie was enraged and became fixated by the idea of getting revenge. One evening in early March 1965, when a number of the gang were out drinking, Ronnie got word that George was having a pint in a pub nearby. He was outraged. This was Cray territory. With one of his henchmen in tow, Ronnie walked around to the pub, which was busy with customers. The song, The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore by the Walker Brothers was playing on the jukebox. Ronnie caught sight of George sitting at the U-shaped bar, sipping a light ale, and marched up to him. When George turned around, he reportedly said to Ronnie, well, look who's here then. Then Ronnie did something that he'd never done before. He held up his gun and shot George at point blank range, right between the eyes, in front of a pub full of witnesses. Then he turned around and walked out the door. While Ronnie had always been a violent and ruthless gangster, he had never been a murderer. Albert was appalled when he heard what had happened. Ronnie was getting more reckless by the minute. Later that night, Albert and the other henchmen were standing around drinking with the craze when they heard that George had been pronounced dead in hospital. Ronnie and some of the others cheered in response, but Albert said nothing, knowing what the consequences could be. The Crays managed to hush up the witnesses to the murder, including the barmaid, and the police couldn't pin the crime on Ronnie. But it was clear that his violent mood swings were getting worse. Albert started to doubt that he could be controlled. And it wouldn't be long before things became a lot more complicated. In December of 1966, the firm had a serious problem. The Crays had helped an old friend of theirs, called Frank Mitchell, escape from prison. It had been Ronnie's idea. Frank was a violent robber known as the Mad Axeman, due to his choice of weapon. And Ronnie liked the idea of showing up the authorities by breaking such a high-profile criminal out of prison, right under their noses. Frank became the subject of a nationwide manhunt, and so, after the breakout, the Crays hid him away in a pokey London flat, laying low before they made their next move. But the situation quickly became volatile. 
Frank had severe mental problems and was prone to aggressive outbursts. When they told him he couldn't see his parents, he started behaving erratically and was difficult to control. He was proving a liability, and the trouble the twins had gone to in order to secure his freedom no longer seemed worth it. They couldn't turn Frank in to the authorities because they were compromised for helping him to escape, nor could they release him for fear that he would inform on them. Instead, they enlisted the services of their trusted henchmen to clean up their mess, and Albert was one of them. The details of exactly what happened next are disputed, but it's alleged that on Christmas Eve 1966, Albert and a few other associates were instructed to lure Frank into a van with the promise that they were taking him to a safe location outside of London, a farmhouse in the idyllic Kent countryside. There, Frank would spend Christmas Day with his old friend, Ronnie Cray. But Albert says that once the doors of the van were firmly shut, he realized that the cozy plan was a decoy. Immediately, two of his fellow henchmen opened fire on Frank in the passenger seat, shooting him over and over again. His body was riddled with bullets. According to Albert, he was never told that Frank would be murdered. In fact, the entire time the killing was taking place, he was certain that they would turn on him next, that he too was about to die. When he was finally allowed out of the van, he could scarcely believe he was still alive. The relief was overwhelming. But Albert would never forget the way the craze had disposed of their former friend the minute he had become an inconvenience. No matter how close you were to the craze, you were never truly safe. When they were done with you, they'd cast you out like trash. That night, he shared what had happened with his wife, although he made her promise never to tell anyone else. She was frightened and wanted Albert to leave the firm. They had two young children who needed him. But at that point, there was no obvious way out for Albert. This wasn't a job you could just quit. Over the years, he doled out his fair share of violence in their name. And with every new heinous crime he was implicated in, he was pulled further into the craze web. By 1967, it was not just Ronnie whose mental state was declining at pace. Reggie's was starting to crumble too. His marriage had been on the rocks for months. He'd married Frances Shea in 1965, but she had been deeply unhappy with their life together. She was rarely seen out with Reggie, and when she was, it was well known that she disapproved of the company he kept. On top of this, Ronnie was jealous of Francis's closeness to his brother and treated her with misogynistic disdain. Tragically, in the summer of 1967, Francis took her own life. Reggie responded by drinking even more heavily than usual and Albert was unsettled by this marked deterioration. Reggie had always been the more dependable one, a voice of reason, so far as the craze were reasonable. Now, Albert worried that restraint would be a thing of the past. As Reggie's mood became darker, 
Ronnie became a devil on his shoulder. Since he'd killed George Cornell two years earlier, Ronnie had become obsessed with a disturbing thought. He wanted his twin brother to prove himself, to become his equal. He dared Reggie to do as he had done, to know how it felt to kill someone. They had to be in this together. It was almost a test of loyalty. Many times, Albert witnessed Ronnie snarl at Reggie, I've done mine, now you do yours. Increasingly, he was erupting into fits of apoplectic rage. More than once, he screamed at Reggie that he had no guts. And slowly, Ronnie's words seemed to seep through and take hold. The man who was to become their next target was Jack the Hat McVitie. He was a former Cray associate and hitman who was becoming a problem for the Crays. It's alleged that he had a habit of getting drunk, causing scenes at their friends' establishments, and being unscrupulous with money. His most recent crime was that he had failed to fulfill a contract to kill one of the Cray's ex-associates, despite taking payment for the job. To confront Jack, the twins invited him to a party at a friend's apartment in North London on October 29, 1967. The minute Jack arrived, Reggie pulled out a gun and, while his twin Ronnie looked on, pulled the trigger. But nothing happened. The gun had jammed. It seemed like Jack was the luckiest man alive. A vicious verbal argument ensued between Jack and Ronnie and descended into a fight. It was then that Reggie lost all control. The loss of his wife, the pressure from his brother, the fear of looking weak, it all overwhelmed him. He picked up a carving knife from the kitchen and launched himself at Jack, stabbing him in the chest and head multiple times. He kept on cutting and twisting even when it was clear Jack was dead. Albert was the one sent to clean up the crime scene. The apartment was like a slaughterhouse. There was blood everywhere, great big pools of it. He scrubbed the plaster and redecorated the whole place by hand. He even had to put in new tiles and a lino floor. Reggie's attack had been messy and badly planned. Albert had never seen him lose it like that before. The craze had always felt untouchable, but they were getting sloppy. It was only a matter of time before the police caught up with them. By 1967, Ronnie and Reggie Cray had started to lose control of their criminal empire. They had committed a murder each, and the police were on to them. None more so than police detective Leonard Reed. He knew about the murders of George Cornell and Jack McVitie and had a feeling that the craze might be behind them. Detective Reed, known as Nipper, was a short, thin man. He'd grown up in Nottingham, in the center of England, but had moved south to London to join the police there when the Nottingham force had rejected his application. At the time, they'd only accepted officers who were over six feet tall. But what Nipper lacked in stature, he made up for in patience, determination, and a meticulous approach to gathering evidence. 
When he was first charged with investigating the twins three years earlier, in 1964, he'd realized that the Crays were good at covering their tracks. He'd have to play the long game and wait for them to slip up. Now the bodies were piling up. He knew the twins were losing their edge. He hoped that now the people of East London would realize the firm had to be stopped and start talking. He began collecting evidence, building a solid case around the craze. And eventually, after months of painstaking investigation, he had a breakthrough. He'd been making regular visits to the barmaid who had witnessed the murder of George Cornell. At first, she had been too terrified to tell him the truth. But slowly, over time, Nipper had persuaded her to make a witness statement for the good of the community. Then, he made his move. On the morning of May 8th, 1968, detectives burst into the Cray family home. The twins were dragged from their beds and handcuffed face down on the floor. From there, they were taken to prison to await trial. But Nipper's work wasn't over yet. He'd had enough evidence to arrest them, but he needed to make sure there was enough to convict them. To get that, he knew he needed insider information. And it wouldn't be long before one of Cray's closest associates would turn his back on the twins and give it to him. Albert Donahue had been arrested, too. After all, he'd been implicated in the murders and was on the Cray's payroll. In May 1968, he was dragged from his family home and taken to Brixton Prison, where he waited to hear his fate. Albert was sitting in his cell one day when one of the guards opened his door and led him to a windowless conference room within the prison. Around a table sat Reggie and Ronnie Cray, along with their older brother Charlie and their lawyer. Albert pulled up a chair. They told him it was time to get their stories straight. This wasn't a surprise to Albert. He'd been making notes in preparation and carefully crafting his defense. He knew that at some point they would need to compare their versions of events. Reggie took Albert's wad of carefully composed notes and read through them. But when he was done, he tore them to shreds. Seeing what was happening, the lawyer anxiously stood up and left the room. Albert was baffled. Something was up. Now alone with the craze, he listened as they told him their plan. There would be no notes and no defense for Albert. The twins would admit only to the peripheral charges against them of violence and fraud. Two other associates would take the rap for the murders of George Cornell and Jack McVitie. Albert was to admit to killing Frank Mitchell. And that was that. Albert was astonished. He had given them years of loyalty, and this was how they repaid him? He was being ordered to sacrifice his own freedom to save the craze. Furious, he looked Ronnie in the eyes and said, no. The temperature in the room dropped as the craze stared at him. In that moment, Albert knew that he was out of the firm and no longer under their protection. It wasn't just his life that was in danger. He knew how the craze thought and how they behaved. His family were at risk too. He thought of his son, his daughter, 
and the new baby his wife had just given birth to. The following day, Albert's mother came to visit him in the prison. She brought Albert's baby son with her. When she passed him to Albert across the table, he cradled him for a while, then discreetly slipped a note inside the blanket. It was an instruction. It told his mom to get hold of Detective Nipper Reed. Albert was prepared to talk to him. Soon after, Nipper arrived at Brixton Prison. Legend has it that he disguised himself as a vicar in order to pass through security and enter the heart of the building without being recognized. And some even claim that he went to the prison chapel, where Albert delivered his testimony as if he were confessing. Whether these details are true or not, Nipper's meeting with Albert was one of immense importance. Albert, who was sick of living in fear and paranoia, would finally reveal everything and play a vital role in ending the Cray Twins' 12-year reign of terror. Over three days in the summer of 68, he told Nipper the story of how the Crays had arranged the murder of Frank Mitchell, that Ronnie had shot George Cornell, and that Reggie had stabbed Jack McVitie to death. It was the first time someone so close to the Crays had betrayed them. And for Nipper, Albert's testimony was the final piece of the jigsaw. In March of 1969, his statement helped jail the Crays for life. And in return, the police offered Albert's family protection. Two officers guarded them 24 hours a day for the next few weeks, in case the Craze friends came after them. The Craze trial became the longest and most expensive murder hearing ever to take place in the Old Bailey, London's historic court. There, 60 plainclothes police officers watched members of the jury night and day. Police stalked the corridors of the court with walkie-talkies and monitored every entrance. The Crays were ferried to and from the building in a convoy of police cars, flanked by police motorcycles. The sheer scale of the security was a sign of just how powerful the Crays had become. After 39 days, the judgment was delivered. The twins were convicted of the murders of George Cornell and Jack McVitie. They were to be detained for a minimum of 30 years. The Crays were later cleared of the murder of Frank Mitchell due to a lack of evidence. According to witnesses, his body had been taken out to sea by boat and sunk in the English Channel. It was never found. As for Albert, even though he'd helped the police convict the Crays, he wasn't let completely off the hook. He was found guilty of helping Frank Mitchell escape from prison and covering up the murder of Jack McVitie. He received an 18-month sentence. He walked free in 1969, having served only six months. He was 33 years old. Back home in East London, Albert and his family had to watch their backs. While many of the Cray's associates had joined rival gangs, left the country, or were locked up, there were still a few of their friends around. When the firm had crumbled, many people had lost their wealth, their freedom, and their pride, and they wanted revenge. Eventually, Albert and his family secretly moved several miles away to South London, and at first, they seemed to be safe there. Until one evening, 
when Albert was convinced to join a group of old friends on a night out. The evening had started well, and Albert was just beginning to relax and have fun when he found himself alone in a car with one of his old associates, who'd suddenly turned to him and asked, Are you scared? Albert had glanced at the man's hand and saw the glint of a knife. After a struggle, he'd managed to snatch it away. Then, according to Albert, he'd stabbed the man with it and made his escape. Soon after, a group of Cray's remaining cronies turned up at his new home in South London to shout at his family through the mail slot. It left him terrified. He and his family had no choice but to leave London. In the following years, his family moved around the country frequently. Albert brought money in by doing industrial painting and decorating jobs. But whenever something unsettled him, he would tell his wife and three children to pack their bags. He knew they hated it, but he didn't feel that he had a choice. Albert knew he'd brought this life upon himself and his family. He'd shared in the spoils of crime for his entire adult life. He'd signed a deal with the devil and done unspeakable things, even if he'd never killed anyone. What had he expected? In the end, Albert outlived both of his bosses. Ronnie Cray remained in prison until he had a heart attack on March 15, 1995. He died two days later, aged 61. Reggie was allowed out of prison for the day to attend his funeral. Five years later, in late August 2000, 66-year-old Reggie was released from prison on compassionate grounds following a cancer diagnosis. He died one month later. Albert says that when he heard of their passing, he felt nothing. Their deaths, he said, had no impact on him at all. There was no point in dancing on their graves. Albert Donahue passed away on the 7th of April, 2016, aged 80. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Albert Donahue, among the many sources we used, we found Duncan Campbell's September 2015 Guardian article, The Selling of the Craze, and Albert Donahue's book, The Enforcer, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Ailsa Cameron. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. Rodriguez.